This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I'd like to welcome you to today's podcast. And the topic today is the problem of psychological distress and burnout in critical care clinicians. And I'm really fortunate today to be joined by three colleagues. The first is Jennifer Leckie, who authored a very impactful essay entitled, I Will Not Cry, that was recently published in this month uh, uh, in uh, this month in the annals. And we're also fortunate to be joined by Dr. Dina Kelly-Costa and Dr. Mark Moss, who co-authored a manuscript entitled The Cost of Caring, Emotion, Burnout, and Psychological Distress in Critical Care Clinicians, which was also published this month. Ms. Selecki is a nurse with Hillcrest Resource Team in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Dr. Costa is currently an assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Nursing in Ann Arbor. And finally, Dr. Moss is the Roger S. Mitchell Professor of Medicine and Vice Chair of Clinical Research in the Department of Medicine uh, at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora. So welcome to all of you, and thank you very much for taking the time for this podcast. As you well know, there's been a lot of focus on the important topic of healthcare professional burnout, both at the national level and increasingly so at academic and other medical centers. This problem is specifically prominent in the ICU setting so our discussion today is particularly relevant. What I'd like to do to start uh, is really go to Jennifer uh, and really ask her to describe her personal experience as a critical care nurse and then use that as a springboard for discussing the topic more broadly. Sounds good, folks? Sounds great. Sounds good. Great. All right, Jennifer. So please describe for our audience the, the experience and the very powerful experience uh, that led to your writing this piece for the Annals. I've been a ICU nurse for about 10 years, and this experience for me was was not about any one patient. It was about a combination of experiences that, that you develop as a nurse at the bedside when you take care of critically ill patients day in and day out, 12-hour shifts, and you're there with them all the time. And it's impossible for me to, to overstate the impact of being there um, with the suffering constantly. There's no there's no real break. Even when you leave the unit, you're still in the hospital. And very often, if you're in a resource-poor environment, you don't get to leave. So you're there all the time. And you develop these extremely close relationships very, very quickly with these patients and their families. And that's what um, brought this burnout story um, well. It's not a really, it's not just a story, it's my story um, of something that happened to me. And it wasn't just one patient, and I think that's the point that I need to, I feel like I need to get across, is it was all of my patients, all the time, and the sustained level of pain and suffering that we see. And I was told by someone when I was, I was crying um, in the back room over one of my patients, and one of the clinicians came in to get something out of the the utility room and was like, oh, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just really upset about this patient. And he said, well, you work in ICU. You're just going to have to get used to that. And I thought, well, how callous and how arrogant to tell me what my job is and what my motivation should be 
and what my job entails when you have never done it because he was not a bedside nurse. Um, so he didn't have my unique perspective. No, I think your point is very well very well taken. And for physicians, um, you know, in the ICU and other settings, certainly uh, we're not there every minute of the day. And, and, you know, I've been practicing critical care for a long time, and I've always been, uh, you know, very thankful for the bedside nurses, both in the ICU and elsewhere. And I think your point's very well taken that, that you at the bedside really bear the brunt of the emotional toll of, of what the patient uh, and their family is, is going through. Ultimately, what motivated you to write this piece, Jennifer? Was this something um, to help you um, evolve, or is this something that you wanted to share with other members of critical care teams to, to sort of say it's important to, to verbalize your thoughts and to really seek um, some help or explanation for, for how to deal with, this, with these kinds of circumstances? So what motivated you to write this piece? Well, it came from a conversation that I was having on Twitter, actually, about the impact of uh, of t- caring for the critically ill or bedside clinician, and I had written a thread um, about suicide and burnout. And the editor of the section, um, Innovations and Provocations, actually DM'd me and said, "This looks like an amazing story. Tell me more about this story." And and I decided I'm just I'm going to write it. And so that's how. I, I came up with it. It's, I've been a storyteller all my life, but this is a bit of a different story. I think it would be important for the audience. I know you said that that obviously this is really uh, your experience in general as a bedside critical care nurse, but I think it'd be uh, important for the audience to hear just about this specific patient, this young woman, um, that was at least the starting point for your for your manuscript. Well, the issue with that is that I made her up. Now the the experiences that I I've had in there those are not um, those are not unique experiences to that particular patient. I've had more than one patient that has been the young mommy who has died. I've had more than one patient where we we brought um, the baby from the NICU to see mom because that um, in the in the NICU and in the CVICU those are the two ICUs that always get the mothers who do poorly during childbirth or after their their children are born, um, they always come to us. And so we get a lot of postpartum hemorrhage and we get a lot of um, the fatty liver of pregnancy. Well, not a lot because that's a rare thing. But we, we get those patients. You know, we, we get the patient that has the C-section down in hybrid lab because they need an impella placed. I mean, that's, that's, our, that's our patient population um, when things go, when things go terribly wrong. So, um, this is that's important for me for you for everyone to understand that this is not just one patient. This is a multitude of people, and I made her one person, but I'm I made her up. She's not. Okay. You, you couldn't go and find her. <laughs> okay. You know. Uh, got it. Um, are other members of your team, the nursing team specifically, uh, are they similarly impacted? Um, by the group of patients that have certainly impacted you in a similar way? I think every bedside clinician, and particularly a nurse, is touched by the people that they care for. And you see a lot of different ways of coping with that, a lot of gallows humor, a lot of inappropriate comments and laughter at inappropriate times. What's interesting um, 
as to watch the the evolution of cynicism in people who start fresh-eyed and fresh-faced and they've never really suffered loss and then they go into the ICU and in the adult ICU particularly the death rates are far higher than they are um in a like in a pediatric setting mm-hmm. so you you become very accustomed to death and the process of dying very quickly. Um, in my case, I've become less cynical as time has gone on and more in tune with my emotions and the emotions of other people. Um, and I think that's because when I came into the field of nursing, as that's not my first career, I was already a, a hardened, jaded, cynical being. And I've become less so as the years have passed. Actually, I want to follow up on that. Go ahead, Mark. Greg, one one thing I would say is that um, I think an important um, part of Jennifer's piece is it shows that Jennifer and other people are willing to talk about this. And I think what happened in the past is that um, you you asked the question, Greg, is, you know, were other people of the team affected by this or the the difficult work environment? And I completely agree with Jennifer. I think – you know, everyone's affected by this. <clears throat> no one felt comfortable talking about it. Um, they felt that there was something wrong with them um, as opposed to that we had difficult jobs and people didn't want to be perceived as not being able to cut it or make it. Um, so they suffered in silence. Um, and I think what's, as I said, what's important about this is that um, people are realizing this is a problem. It's it's basically an occupational health problem. Um and, and we need to address it that way. Um but the first important step is to make people feel comfortable talking about it. And that's why I think this piece is really important. I, I agree with that Mark and, and, and I appreciate your, your perspective on this. Uh Jennifer, you mentioned that you've become less cynical and how so tell me more about how your your personal experience um moving forward has affected your work as a nurse. What other things um, um, are now characteristic of, of, of Jennifer Leckie as a bedside critical care nurse? Hang on. Um, for some reason, I picture that question going quite differently. What what things bring me? Well, what if, you know, given, given the circumstances that, that you faced, um, I think, you know, talking about these kinds of problems, as Mark said, is important. So besides, obviously, sharing your experience, are there things, besides you said you're less cynical, um, do you spend more time, do you direct people to, to, for example, to set up debriefing sessions? Have you taken uh, more of a leadership role in your own setting in in addressing the idea of psychological um, um, uh, consequences and uh, and burnout in, in, in nurses and, and other colleagues? So early on in my development, as a critical care nurse, I had a friend who was a very new nurse, and I had been in about five years at that time. And we had coded her patient three times, and her patient had finally had passed. She was very upset. She pulled me into the med room, and she said, talk me off the ledge. And I had some Reglan to give and some pain medication to give and a bunch of other things that I needed to do. But I, I thought, okay. I need to listen. And she she told me this very detailed story of everything that had happened in my mind. I'm not I wasn't really thinking about 
what she was saying. I was thinking about all of the things that I have to do. And I was like, okay, well, it doesn't sound like it was your fault at all. And, you know, these these things that you're describing to me are not what led to her death. And basically, I met, I gave her facts. She didn't need facts. She needed a friend. And I wasn't a friend to her in that moment. I was just another clinician giving facts. And she left the med room after our conversation. And I gave my red one and I gave the pain medicine. And she put in her two weeks notice and she left. And I'm not saying that it's my fault that she left. I'm saying that she needed me and I wasn't there for her. When I was thinking about the fact that she left and that she she left right after our conversation, basically, um, I realized that she needed a friend and she didn't need facts. I wasn't meeting her need with facts. And I realized that the people that I work with um, have feelings as acute as my own. And that they they needed something, like I needed something, that we weren't getting from where we worked. And I've worked at hospitals that have excellent ratings. And I've worked at hospitals that don't. But the impact is the same on everyone. And it's a system-wide problem without a system-wide answer. And I thought, well, I can't, I can't make a difference to everyone who works in critical care, but I could have made a difference to her by listening to her and validating her feelings and her experience. And so that's what I decided I would do. And I've done that not just for my coworkers, um, but for my patients and their families and and for myself. And some people say, oh, you know, your emotion and your invalidates your practice. And really, for those people, I, I guess, whatever gets you through the day. Some people go more callous and they wear masks, but, but I made a decision not to do that and be the same person that I am at the bedside, that I am at home, and give other people the same the same kind of help and hope that I would want for myself and whatever gets them through their day. But if I'm going to get through my day, then then I have to be the kind of person who would comfort someone who's suffering and uh, and be kind to the people that need it the most. Well, thank you. Um, Jennifer, I was, I was particularly intrigued by the title of your piece, um, I Will Not Cry. Why not cry? It's like Mark said. We're, we're trained that we're not to show weakness. And that there's this idea that if you if you care too much, it hurts too much, and that you won't be a good clinician. Like somehow that's a it's something that makes you um, less effective as a nurse or as a physician. And and I always come back to parenting. You know, I have five children, and and I. If me being callous to my child when they're hurting, does that make me a better parent? I mean, absolutely not. Uh, Me being callous to someone on the street who's hurting, does that make me a better person? I mean, no, it doesn't. So why why would that distance make me a better clinician? And then there's another point, which is for a lot of us, 
you know, thinking particularly nurses and why the bedside for all those hours at a time. But there's a strong resistance to showing emotion because once you start crying, you might not be able to stop. And that was the feeling that I was trying to get across in my piece, um, especially at the end, you know, with the, the sort of conversation with the chaplain. You know, why am I not going to cry? And that's because because I can't. Because if I do, I won't stop. And I still have all these things I have to do in this day that I have to get through. And I have to keep getting through that day. And if I let myself feel emotion right now, I won't be able to. But this is part of this is part of our coping all the time as nurses. And there's a reason why when we come home, we sit in the driveway for 15 minutes or 30 minutes. It's not because we're cleaning out our car. It's because we don't want to take all of that into the house with us. If we want to be there for our families, it's not possible to do if we've used everything up at work, if we've used ourselves up. So. Um, Jennifer, what, what forms um, do you think are the most effective to help clinicians deal with emotionally trying events that, that you witness every day of your of your working life? Friendship. In whatever form you find it. And some people find it with pancake and beer breakfast, and some people find it on Twitter, and some people find it in potluck. But I think anything, you know, that, that for you that fosters a sense of community and helps you carry what it is that you're carrying and helps you in some way lay those burdens down. And I couldn't say for for anybody else what's appropriate, but I do know a few things that are not appropriate. And those are those mandatory resilience modules. And they're worse than useless. And I know that a forced debriefing of any sort is an emotional crime. And I know that just as with my friend in the med room, that once someone decides to tell you their story, you need to listen. Well, I appreciate those perspectives, Jennifer. Um, I must say when what I was particularly uh, affected by was uh, what you wrote when asked what you would say to your patient, and you wrote, I would say, I hope they knew I did all I could, all I knew to do. I hope they know they were loved, that I care, that I miss them, that if I could see them again, I would save them, if only I could. So I, I found those words uh, incredibly powerful. Um, and, again, I, I really wanted to thank you for, for writing this essay. It really is uh um, really gives us a lot to ponder, um, both as uh, as nurses and as physicians. So again, thank you. Um, I wanted to get uh, Dina and Mark uh, um, in our conversation as well. So Dina, let me let me direct the first question to you. Is can you just uh, define burnout syndrome? Sure. Yeah. So um, before we go into that, though, I just want to thank Jennifer as well for writing the piece. Um, I think there have been numerous nurses that have come up to me um, in like the last week and a half saying that they read the story and it just resonated with them. So I think that this, you know, the comment about this being a lot of different patients um, and also I think a lot of different nursing experiences is really spot on. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, But to address your question. Sure. Um, So burnout is defined as sort of an individual response primarily to particular work-related events um, that can manifest in people that don't necessarily have um, 
baseline psychological disorders. And what happens is, is it, it develops pretty gradually, and it's typ- typified by sort of these three kind of key characteristics, which is emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and sort of reduced personal ac- accomplishment. Um, and so it's kind of a it develops over time, uh, can happen in people that have or not do not have uh, any psychological disorder, um, and it's really related uh, to kind of particular work-related events. I don't know, Mark, if you have anything to tack on for that. No, I, I think that's ex- exactly right, Dina. I think uh, uh, in addition to what you said, it's that burnout occurs when people think that their job description is one thing, but in, in actuality it's something else, so that there's a discrepancy in between what they thought they're getting themselves into and what they're actually doing. Um, and, and I think that's at the core is, uh, of this issue. A lot of people went into nursing, um, to, to medical school, to other healthcare professions that want to help people um, and to make people better and to feel good about what they're doing. And I think as Jennifer highlighted, um, we didn't realize we'd have to deal with the tragedy um, and the suffering as much. And there's that, that there's the expectations are different than what we actually thought the job was at times. Tina, I was I wasn't aware until I read your 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 manuscript uh, about the high rate of PTSD among ICU nurses, uh, and uh, and the fact that nurses have the highest rate of suicide of all healthcare professionals. And as I thought more about it, um, you know, it isn't surprising since nurses are a constant presence at the bedside, um, you know, with patients and their families. Is it as simple as that? Is it because they bear the brunt of, of an intensely emotional environment, or are there other con- contributing factors specifically with regard to to nurses and other uh, other critical care bedside professionals? I think there is likely a sort of a, a kind of a multifactorial issue, right? And ICU nurses do have incredibly high rates of burnout and PTSD, which Meredith Mueller and Mark Moss have done a very good job in sort of documenting sort of the prevalence of that in critical care nurses. Um, the data from about suicide and nurses having the highest rate of suicide was specifically from England. So it's an international context, but um, out of all uh, occupations that were examined, nurses had the highest suicide rate. It was done by the Office of National Statistics in England. Um, And so I think those statistics are pretty staggering, like you mentioned. And I think that there's multiple reasons why that's the case. I think it may be in part uh, due to the fact that nurses are uh, kind of bearing the brunt of the intensely emotional environment. But I also think another important piece that isn't talked about as much is that nurses really, and particularly ICU nurses, are sort of the hub of healthcare delivery. And nurses in critical care units interface with all medical surgical specialties, allied health, patients and families. Um, we're taught to communicate therapeutically in school and, and treat the patient and the family. And our job is just in, inherently interpersonal in nature, and I think many nurses go into it for that reason. Uh, but I think the work of nurses is, at least from my opinion, uh, one of the most emotionally, physically, and intellectually taxing jobs on the planet. And so it demands a lot of you. Um, and I think when there are challenging patient and family situations, emotionally charged situations, conflict between the team, nurses experience it from all different sides, right? They're they're hearing it from the medical team. They're hearing it from the patients and the families. They're experiencing it on their own. Um, and so I think that that just can profoundly disrupt the work 
of nurses um, and our emotional well-being, which I think it disproportionately leads to distress. And so this is why in the, the paper that Mark and I wrote about, we talked a lot about how team solutions to address burnout and psychological distress are really integral. And I think it's very important for nurses, particularly because we interface with so many different uh, clinicians, um, patients, and families in day-to-day in our work. Yeah, we, we're going to get into that because I, I definitely want to hear more and share with the audience about, you know, the different strategies uh, that you and Mark talked about. Um, but a couple of things, uh, and this is something that maybe Dina and you, Mark, can comment on, is are the factors that contribute to burnout in physician different than those for nurses or other healthcare professionals, or are there, are there common threads um, between different professionals? So a lot of the data supports workload, and Jennifer discussed this when she was talking, that workload is a key driver of burnout, um, and that's been very well documented. Um, one thing, I'll let Mark continue to talk about potential other drivers of burnout in healthcare professionals, but one thing that I do want to comment on is that I think we need to be mindful about thinking about physician labeling physician burnout, nurse burnout, you know, occupational health burnout, however we want to define it, because I think that that can potentially further disenfranchise people, which is really a key characteristic of the development of burnout, that isolation piece. And I think burnout happens and occurs and can affect all clinicians. Um, And I think it probably manifests in similar ways across all of those, those different clinicians. And I think if we kind of segment and say physician burnout looks like X, nurse, nurse burnout looks, looks like Y, we have the potential of sort of continuing to perpetuate um, some of the stigma and isolation that um, is associated with burnout and other forms of psychological dis- distress. And, and I would agree with that, Dina. I, to, to add to what you, you said, I think it sounds like it's a semantic thing, but I think it's important as we move forward with things, I think it's um, important to focus on um, healthcare professional wellness. How can we make it that people enjoy coming to work and are able to do their work in a very difficult environment? And I think one thing that does is it just says this is a, a problem of the, as I said, the work environment, um, and let's focus on what we can do to improve that. Not that there's something individually wrong with an with a person who um, is having difficulty dealing with a very tragic situation, which you would expect someone to deal with. I think the other thing that's uh, in, in differentiating from uh, nurses and we'll say physicians is that nurses are more likely to have issues with moral distress because, and I'm not saying I agree with the hierarchical structure of healthcare, but um, it's much more common um, that a nurse would feel that um, their voice is not being heard, that they think something should be done for a patient, but they don't have the ability to implement those things. In general, for physicians, that's not as much of a problem. So I think there are unique differences uh, between uh, the job descriptions and drivers of burnout, and that, that's, that's one example. So, um, Dina, to come back to the point that you raised about the different approaches. So, again, you noted that that uh, you know approaching to emotion, approaching the issue of emotional distress and burnout involves sort of three strategies: individualized solutions, interprofessional team approaches, and and system solutions. So, um, long question, but can you elaborate uh, on each of those three strategies and some of the lessons that you uh, and Mark have learned? Sure. 
from my perspective, and I think Mark and I talk about this in the piece, sort of system solutions are really foundational to addressing burnout. Um, and a lot of the current approaches that have been suggested in the literature and are actually being applied, again, Jennifer mentioned this, in sort of mandatory debriefings or mandatory resilience training, um, uh, specifically referring to the mandatory resilience training, a lot of it seems to rest the responsibility on the individual employee. Um, and I think that this is a little bit of a misstep. I think that, as Mark mentioned, right, thinking about wellness, um, individual wellness is a wonderful goal, but I think you need to have also kind of con concomitant concurrent system uh, solutions um, to help manage that. And part of that is some of those system solutions are kind of creative time off strategies, ways for clinicians to take mental health days if necessary with no stigma or repercussions attached with it. Um, there's some data that supports that clinicians that do have more time off have fewer depressive symptoms. So there's data supporting that these sorts of approaches are, are helpful. Ways to develop supportive cultures and environment, which is really where the team, interprofessional team solutions come in, um, where clinicians can ask for help and can ask to take a break. We, I'm, I'm in the process of collecting data in um, uh, qualitative data in a couple of ICUs, and I saw a beautiful, beautiful example of this the other day when there was a very challenging patient uh, scenario in which there was conflict between the family uh, and the entire medical team, nurses included, about sort of the goals of care, and this had been ongoing for a while. And one of the residents said to the nurse, you know, how, how, are, how, is, how is the nursing staff dealing with it? Are you able to rotate taking care of this patient so it doesn't, all this burden and suffering and pain doesn't fall on one of you? Um, which was just a really nice, uh, I believe, a really nice example of ways that we can support our, our, our colleagues. Um, and then lastly, this also ties into sort of the system solutions, is this way to create opportunities for positive reframing. Again, Mark mentioned uh, well-being emphasis, the ATS well-being initiative. Um, and moving away from sort of the singular focus on the absence of burnout, as well as thinking about how we can facilitate joy in work. Um, there's a number of different team solutions that have been uh, suggested, such as the medical pause, uh, virtual or in-person communities for clinicians to share thoughts. Um, uh, Jennifer mentioned Twitter, and there's a number of different uh, 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 Twitter handles or Twitter accounts um, that help clinicians tell their stories, uh, which is ways to, I believe, just some ways to address this. But I think the key message here is that system solutions are really foundational. Team and individual solutions are, are helpful when you have that um, solid system underneath. Mark, any comments? No, I think Jennifer's spot on that way. I think it it is very important to realize that, number one, not um, one solution will fix all of it. Um, and I think the other thing that's important is that I think there needs to be a, a multifaceted approach to this because everyone's going to need something that's maybe a little bit different. And I think it's not correct to think that we're going to come up with one intervention or one strategy that works for everybody. Um, and I think if we go into it in that way that we're trying to look for the one answer, um, I think that's going to hurt hurt the advancement of this. I think it has to be from the beginning that it's a multimodal approach. Um, and I think that's the way things should be examined. Not not that we, let's study one thing, let's study one other one thing. I think we have to study a system of how we um, can improve uh, this, this, this really major problem.
So, Mark, I, I have a question specifically for you. Um, so, as you know, you and I both trained in an era where pulmonary critical care physicians practiced in a number of different settings, outpatient, uh, inpatient consultation, and as well as in the ICU. And, and I, for one, uh, still do that. Um, but I've been concerned for a number of years, for example, as we've developed a, you know, a, a section within our division of, of people who do just critical care. And I've been particularly concerned that, that practicing critical care only, uh, especially in a, in a very tense environment, um, like the ICU wouldn't be sustainable because of the emotional toll. Is is my concern justified, or is that oversimplification with regard to? Physicians? Yeah, no, I think it's. I think there is some some validity and some truth to that, Greg. I think it. The problem is, is there's sort of this yin and yang to working in the ICU. Um, people that are attracted to this environment, um, a lot of them like that adrenaline rush, or they like the working in a in a tense um, atmosphere that way. Um, in the beginning, um, you know, it, it's it's it's. Um, it's invigorating to people sometimes that, you know, they got in there and somebody wasn't doing well and they helped get that person get better. Um, and they get a lot of enjoyment from that. It's figuring out how to sustain that in that model. And you would think, as you said, rotating people around um, to do other things is one strategy. And I think it's true. Um, what happens to some people is if you take a, an ICU person and you put them on a pulmonary floor, they're going to get bored and they're going to say, oh, this is a waste of my time, etc. It's also when you have patients boarding in the intensive care unit that are not critically ill, um, people don't like that either. Again, it gets back to that expectation between what you think your job is and what you're actually doing. So I think your solution, Greg, for some people will, will definitely work and not do it too much. Um, but I think what they do in that other period of time has to be something that they find enjoyable also. So I think one thing I've been able to do is I think having an academic slash research career has enabled me to um, you know survive in an intensive care unit setting longer because I do have breaks between the amount of time. Personally, I couldn't imagine working in an intensive care unit, you know, 52 weeks a year, five days a week, seven days a week, et cetera. Um, I, that would be an unfathomable job for me. You know, you and I were both at a lecture this year uh, at ATS about burnout, and you know the section I'm, uh, the yeah. section I'm talking about. And the speaker who um, was really very insightful and, and certainly uh, helped me frame a discussion about physician burnout talked about that physicians can put up with almost anything professionally uh, if they spend at least 20% of their time doing something they really love. Uh, is that your experience? Um. You know, I would hope it would be higher than that. I, I would would hope it would be um, 100%. Um, I, I can tell you one of the reasons I picked being a pulmonary critical care physician um, and doing internal medicine is when I was in medical school at Penn, one of my residents told me that the one, one way to pick a job is there's 
a lot of mundane parts of any profession that we have and any types of medicine. And that's what you're going to end up doing the majority of the time. And it's hard to find extreme joy in that mundaneness or that routine. So what they recommended is finding the routine that you can tolerate and deal with, you know, deal with on a reasonable basis. Um, for example, if, if, if dealing with uh, people with chronic abdominal pain really is a bother to you, then you know maybe going into GI is not something you, you'd want to deal with. Um, so I think there is some truth to the statement. Um, not every day of your job is going to be uh, the most exciting thing. Um, there is going to be some routine to it. But I think overall, you have to like what you do. And I think what's happened, um, especially in the critical care, is there are the problems that Jennifer talked about that have been there for a long time, if not forever. Um, people, unfortunately, are going to pass away in intensive care units, and we're going to see tragedy in intensive care units. But what's happened um, due to electronic medical record systems, due to changes in the way that healthcare is, um, is delivered, there's a lot of things that we do as physicians and other healthcare professionals that really are not what we thought we were signing up for. Um, and, and at that session, Greg, um, one of the things that was presented by um, Chris Sinsky, um, who published this paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine, is that for every hour that we have face-to-face -face time, this was done in an outpatient setting, there are now two hours of documentation and times we spend on the electronic medical record system. So I think it's not only putting in 20% of something that you really enjoy doing, but making sure that the other 80% is tolerable to you. Thanks, Mark. Dina, what resources do you have in place in Michigan um, that have been particularly helpful in, in helping um, nurses uh, and, and other critical care clinicians? Or, or what have you seen in, in your experience at other institutions that, that uh, we can leave with our audience? Sure, yeah. I think um, structured debriefing, I think, can be really helpful. But again, back to Jennifer's point, um, making it mandatory, right, isn't 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 the way to go. Um, <laughs> um, I think the important piece there is that you need to have, or at least invite all of the clinicians that are that were affected or potentially affected to be available. Um, uh, and so not just having debriefs for the day shift or for the night shift or vice versa. I'm just kind of trying to identify all the clinicians that are potentially involved in any patient uh, scenario that has been emotionally challenging. Uh, here at Michigan, there are a couple of attendings um, that have instituted the medical pause, which I mentioned before, uh, which uh, came out in the literature, I think, in the around 2012, 2013, I think, by a critical care nurse that had wrote this um, uh, this sort of uh, piece about the work that they do in their ICU when a patient dies. Um, it can be initiated by any any team member, and they just ask for a brief pause for kind of whomever's there to sort of acknowledge um, uh, that patient's life for a patient that has passed away. And it can really be transferred to sort of any any challenging patient. I think any challenging scenario in general, emotionally challenging scenario in, in critical care. Um, and so I know a, couple, a handful of attendings here in our medical ICU uh, that employ that. Um, with a lot of, I think, the, the clinicians really appreciate it, uh, and it allows everyone some time, albeit brief, to just sort of process their emotions um, in, 
and not necessarily a very structured, formalized way. But everybody just can can just take a couple of minutes and um, and take a pause. Mark, how about uh, at the University of Colorado? You know, we're we're working on a lot of different strategies and implementing things that way. Um, I, I think the the examples of interventions that Dina talked about are are, are great. Um, other things that that we're trying to do is give people the time um, to to take care of themselves. Um, because what's happened, as I said, is that people have had work is just continually getting added to to our, our routine. So people are now writing their notes when they get home. Do you know they can? There's electronic medical record system, um, and it's just taking more and more time for the documentation and the mundane parts of the job. It, so it, it makes it hard sometimes for people even to have time to go see their primary care doctor themselves or take care of their own medical issues. So one thing we're going to start looking into is can we give people routine time off to take care of themselves? And if that means going to, um, you know, take care of themselves from a from a medical standpoint, that's fine. If that's going to do other things that are going to make them happy um, and return joy to their work environment, um, that's, that's, that's great too. And I think the other thing that Dina talked about and Jennifer did also, is there's a lot of isolation in medicine. I think, Greg, one thing that happened when you and I were residents, we, you know, we worked very long hours. There were a lot of people in the hospital. There wasn't as much of a concept of shift work. So even though we were there long hours, there was a sense of community. And I think that was very, very helpful that way. I think the way that medicine is practiced now is a little bit more individualistic. People work shifts more. People sit in front of computers and write their notes more um, by themselves. There's not as much a sense of community. So we're trying to implement different strategies to return that sense of community to the work environment. That's uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because because again, even in Jennifer's piece and and what she commented on earlier was the sense of isolation, the feeling of being in this by yourself. So I I appreciate your you're bringing uh, you bringing that forward, uh, Mark. You and others published a Critical Care Society's collaborative statement a couple of years ago, back in 2016. That was a call to action about this idea of you know distress and burnout. So where are we now, two years later? Are we uh, are we on a good path to to really addressing this in a in a in a comprehensive way for physicians and for nurses and other healthcare professionals. I, I think so, and I think the the first important step that's happened, which is one reason we had that call to action, is um, I can give you an example. Is probably seven years ago, maybe ten years ago, um, was the first time at an ATS meeting that I presented some of Meredith's research and my research on this, and it was in a ten-minute, um, you know, talk session. And what was really interesting is that the response I got to that presenting that um, that data that. This is a really prevalent problem in critical care healthcare professionals. Was that, boy, I, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't see this at our hospitals. Um, there must be something different about where you work because this isn't a pervasive problem. And when I would give lectures at other places as a visiting professor or whatever, um, it was the same response. People didn't want to admit that this was an issue. They, as Dina said, they were 
perceived, they didn't want to be perceived as being weak or that they couldn't cut it, etc. Um, I think what's happened that's really important now is we don't have to convince people anymore that this is a problem. People are admitting that this is a problem and they're now focusing on what can we do to alleviate these symptoms and improve the ability for people to do their jobs. The important things that that brought that on were two things, or, you know, two to three things. Number one is that literature came out that showed that burnout and other psychological distress in healthcare professionals impacts patient care. And once that this became not just the, quote, whining of the privileged class, you're a doctor, you knew what you're getting yourself into, you know, nursing is a very caring profession, you make a reasonable salary, you knew what you were getting yourself into. Once it was shown that it's affecting the care of patients, it's something that had to be addressed. And I think the other thing is that once it was shown that people are leaving their jobs, um, as Jennifer talked about, and as you mentioned, that people have more serious psychological um, issues such as su suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, I think people realize that there is a real depth to this problem. So I think the call to action was important because it brought it to the front of the critical care community. And what I've seen over the last two years is a transformation to acknowledging and accepting that this is an issue. And it's been very rewarding to start to see healthcare systems, academic programs, different hospitals, not ask, is this a problem, but what can we do to fix this problem? Um, and I think hopefully as the trajectory continues this way, um, we will start to have solutions to the problem um, and, and uh, allow people to enjoy their job better, perform better while they're at work, and ultimately take better care of themselves and their patients. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Jennifer, um, Nina, in her piece, in her manuscript with Mark, wrote about um, the effectiveness of storytelling in promoting what, what they call post-traumatic growth. Um, and I can tell you that from, a, from my personal uh, experience, uh, yours is really a, a wonderful example uh, of how storytelling can impact uh, your colleagues, um, and again, um, thank you for for uh, letting us use your story as a spring for, springboard for a larger discussion. Uh, any last thoughts or comments, Jennifer? Oh, no, I think we've covered some amazing ground. I don't have anything else to say. I'm glad that my stories could be used in this way to make a difference to other people. I'm glad being that we're talking about this and we're being honest about it and transparent instead of continually trying to, to keep our armor up. And, and certainly I think a continuing dialogue is uh, is really going to be a critical of critical importance. Dina, how about you? Any any other comments or thoughts uh, before we sign off? I just want to say thanks so much to Jennifer for sharing her story. Thanks again for Mark um, to, to writing the, the sort of companion piece. And really a great thanks to Annals of American Thoracic Society, I think, for publishing this work, I think giving voice to Jennifer's story which really is the story of so many critical care clinicians. I think giving voice and hearing these stories is really critical to changing the conversation. Um, and I really think Annals of ATS is sort of a leader in this space. 
I can really only hope that more journals, more professional societies, and we as a profession really work um, towards giving clinicians a voice in this way and work towards improving um, and addressing burnout and psychological distress uh, so that we do have a workforce um, in the future to care, which is really the, the key thrust of critical care is the caring. Thank you, Dina. Mark? I'm not sure I can add anything to what Dina just said because that was spot on. Thank you. I agree more. <laughs> so uh, in closing, I'd like to, again, thank Jennifer, Dina, and Mark uh, for participating in the podcast. And I hope you and the audience have found today's discussion about psychologic distress and burnout in critical care clinicians uh, as thought-provoking as I have. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Thank you for joining in.